it comes down to tribal identity. And it's, it's been really helpful for us in a lot of ways because it's created social cohesion. It's really allowed for people to, to really enjoy each other's company and to not use it in a way that's been harmful. But we've seen the harmful outcomes too in politics and war and in climate change. I mean, the example of this is that when issues get polarized like climate change has, and honestly, like how COVID-19 is going, that's when these issues then become part of that identity and that's when it can become really harmful. With cases recorded in more than 140 countries, the novel coronavirus has become a global health crisis. In the US, bars have been closed, conferences canceled and kids kept home from school in an effort to slow down the spread. President Trump has declared a national emergency and invoked the Defense Production Act to accelerate the virus response. So why haven't we seen this kind of rapid mobilization around addressing climate change, another human-propelled global crisis that has likely already claimed thousands of lives? These threats are not the same, but they do share certain attributes, as we discuss with a risk and behavioral scientist on this episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And from a safe distance of more than six feet away, we have on the line my co-host Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, and Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. Brandon, I understand you're not just social distancing, you're in home quarantine. So I know you haven't been feeling well and you reached out to your doctor. So what's going on? Are you okay? Do you have coronavirus? <laughs> I don't know, but it's a good possibility. I was in New York uh, early last week, uh, went to the New York Stock Exchange for a sustainability investor event. So I sort of knew the trip was a little risky, but I was really excited about the event. And it was before everything got canceled. Uh, so, it was, you know, things were moving fast and all that hadn't happened yet. But I took the subway all day uh, early last week. And so uh, we know that New York has uh, an outbreak. Uh, I could have uh, contracted it there, but uh, last weekend uh, I was uh, miserable. I had worst headache of all time, uh, really bad uh, fever, uh, aches and pains. Called the doctor, um, and uh, they said I satisfied the criteria for the test, but they couldn't get me a test. <laughs> uh, so that was an example of where President Trump uh, was not telling the truth. Uh, tests were not available even for people that uh, needed them. But uh, I'm very fortunate, great health uh, and good immune system. So I was able to you know, sort of get past it pretty quickly. It was a little bumpy, 48 hours, 72 hours, but feeling good now and just totally isolating so that I don't infect anybody else. It says boxing classes are paying off. <laughs> well, I miss recording with you guys in person, but you need to stay away for <laughs> a little bit so I don't infect you guys. <laughs> I, I looked at my calendar to see the last time we were together. When you told me you were sick, I was like, oh, I'm just going to dive into the calendar and figure out the last time I <laughs> yeah. saw Brandon. Yeah. Well, COVID-19 is becoming very real for most of America. While the authorities are still getting a handle on the outbreak, many of us are now living very different lives, confined largely to our homes. Overall, responses to the coronavirus have been varied, both between different actors and over time. 
In a moment, we'll speak to risk and behavioral scientist Shweta Chakraborty about complacency and overreaction, as well as unity and polarization as it relates to climate change, infectious disease, and U.S. politics. We were supposed to record this as a live podcast at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, but like so many other events, it was canceled due to COVID-19. So we're going to wash our hands and cross our fingers that we'll get a chance to go back in 2021. For now, here's our conversation with Shweta. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action toward a more sustainable future. Looking for a new activity? Challenge yourself to take on the EarthX 50 for 50 challenge. Five pledges, 10 actions, and 50 ways to protect our planet in honor of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. To play, simply sign up for the EarthX League at www.earthx.org. And once you're there, you can sign up for pledges, post on message boards, share photos of your progress, and more. So sign up for the EarthX League at www.earthx.org and join a network of people working to create a more sustainable world. Countries around the world are beginning to respond aggressively to the novel coronavirus outbreak. As of March 18th, there were more than 210,000 cases worldwide and at least 8,700 deaths. Those numbers could end up much higher as testing availability grows and officials around the globe get a better grip on the situation. Here in the U.S., research shows that up to 2.2 million people could die if the outbreak is left unchecked. In an effort to slow the spread, public life has been effectively shut down in large swaths of the country, and residents have been asked to stay home. Local, state, and federal leaders say that these bold measures are necessary to protect human life. So why are we reacting as swiftly to climate change? It's a potentially catastrophic threat that could harm human health and well-being for generations to come, and yet we don't respond in the same way. To discuss, we're joined by risk and behavioral scientist Shweta Chakraborty. She's the founder of Adapt to Thrive, a venture that seeks to better inform individuals, governments, and businesses on the challenges emerging from a warming planet, such as food security and disease. Shweta also co-hosts the live weekly radio show Risky Behavior on Eaton Radio and is frequently interviewed on major international news media outlets, including CNN, BBC, Newsmax, and more. Shweta, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Shweta, do you see links between the reactions to coronavirus and climate change? I think a lot of people would say that there was a slow response at the outset to this virus outbreak, specifically here in the U.S. President Trump actually called it a hoax and blamed it on the Democrats initially. And then in recent days, we've seen him change his tune. Uh, Is it similar to climate where when the threat seems distant, uh, there's a hesitancy to take action? And then once it hits your shores, it seems a little more real. And then suddenly there's panic. How would you assess that? As a behavioral scientist that's part of the behavioral science community, what we do is we look at risks, global risks, and we compare them to each other and their impacts on overall human health, not just human health, but also overall human well-being. We can look at this from a local level all the way up to a global level. And I am one that studies global risks, and I prioritize them, whether we're talking about the threat of nuclear warfare or infectious disease or climate change. There's ways to compare and contrast these risks and their trade-offs and the different measures you put in place to protect overall human well-being and how those measures then can result in additional risks or minimizing of risks. 
And ultimately, what are the secondary and tertiary impacts of these decisions? Because none of these risks exist on their own or in any particular silo. We need to look at the big picture and it's often very complex, but it's necessary to do because we are in a world of limited resources. We have limited individuals, personnel, time, and these are these are quickly diminishing across the globe as well. So the one thing that I would say that climate change and infectious disease definitely have in common is that it is we are responding not in a way that is uh, accurate to the base rate statistics of the magnitudes of the risk. What I mean by that, and not to get so scientific, is that climate change and its ripple effects we know we have the base rate statistics on the impacts to human health and overall well-being and the response the acknowledgement and the response from individuals and local all the way to global governance is not proportionate to the magnitude of that risk in the same vein infectious disease when it is hanging out any virus pick your virus pick your microorganism whether it's a bacteria or whether it's a virus that can potentially become a pathogen and, and result in human to human transmission they, there's over, I mean, close to 2 million, right? But well over 1.5 of these microorganisms that exist that potentially could result in human to human transmission and negative adverse health effects. These viruses are constantly being surveyed. There are groups on the ground, field epidemiologists based in hotspots around the world from Senegal to China to Southeast Asia that are in con constantly surveying the hotspot landscape for when these um, pathogens can emerge and actually in, impact us. And that is something that the general public is not aware of. When there isn't an outbreak, there's a real complacency around risk. You have your public health experts saying, get your flu vaccine. This is something that we know is going seasonally going to emerge and is going to kill a certain number of, let's say, Americans a year, on average around 40,000 Americans a year. And we as a human populace don't respond. And more than half of us don't get our vaccines for known risks. Yet when we see an infectious disease like COVID-19 emerge, there is incredible hysteria and panic and an overreaction. And so what we know to be true between climate change and infectious disease is that we are not well calibrated. We do not respond to the reality of the risk. And for that reason, there's a lot, of, there's a lot to be learned from both of these things mainly how to better proportionally respond to what we know is the reality of the risk to us. Okay, so if I got it right, in the case of climate change, we know the risk to us is significant, the science tells us so, and yet as a global society, we are doing very little to address it. What you're saying is similar to viral outbreaks and to medical threats, where we know the risks of both existing and expected uh, issues and, and threats, and yet we don't plan ahead in anticipation. And then suddenly we find ourselves in a crisis where we're scrambling to respond. Sweta, this is uh, Brandon. Nice to meet you. Um, all of the polls show that uh, Republicans and Democrats view the risk of climate and uh, pandemics like uh, the COVID-19 virus differently. Why do you think that is? Is there Do you have an explanation for that? So what we know to be universal truths for people, despite their background, ethnic or geographic or uh, religious, the six truths that people will rate some level of commitment to um, or importance on are care, how much do you care for one another, how fair are people with one another, liberty, just general freedom, loyalty, and that's very much linked to the tribal nature of human beings, authority, where do we 
take our direction from, mandates from, and where do we not? And then sanctity or the purity of uh, different decisions within society and amongst individuals with each other. And so it varies from whether you are identifying on the left or on the right, uh, but it's something that everybody ranks some level of importance on, regardless of whether you identify as progressive or uh, conservative or liberal or wherever you fall on that scale. So now knowing knowing that people have some sort of ranking that's important to them, that has played a huge part in climate change in terms of the conversation around how you present information in a way that is going to hit some of those some of the those factors that influence how people are going to respond. And again, it comes down to tribal identity. We have evolved as groups and from the beginning of human evolution, whether it was in small uh, family tribes and then eventually community tribes and then as population grew and human beings spread across the globe, this began to play out in ways that we see now, which is that we haven't always used it against each other, but rather we've made do with these tribal identities that we've created. It's very visible in our politics, which is what we talk, which we're, what we're talking about, and also in 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 entertainment, such as sports. People have tribal identities. You see people who really um, relate to a team and identify with different teams across different sports. Brandon and yes, Shane can resonate Shane with can that. Relate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> we may disagree on politics, but we love LAFC together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's it's been really helpful for us in a lot of ways because it's created social cohesion. It's really allowed for people to to really enjoy each other's company and to not use it in a way that's been harmful. But we've seen the harmful outcomes too in politics and war and and in climate change. I mean, the example of this is that when issues get polarized, like climate change has, and honestly, like how COVID-19 is going, that's when these issues then become part of that identity. And that's when it can become really harmful. So that's something really to keep in mind. On the politics front, some recent polls showed that there is indeed this, you know, wide division between Democrats and Republicans on how they view the risk from coronavirus. And we should note, though, that these polls were taken uh, just before and as President Trump was announcing the national emergency. So they may have changed. But on whether the worst is yet to come, 79 percent of Democrats, according to an NBC Wall Street Journal poll, said yes, the worst is yet to come. 79 percent of Democrats, Republicans, only 40 percent. Uh, whether or not they plan to stop large gatherings, 61% of Democrats, uh, 30% of Republicans. Uh, so just gives you a, a bit of a temperature read on, on where uh, these views these views are. Shane? Yeah. And Shweta, I kind of, I'm going to ask you, probably not cool, but uh, to behaviorally diagnose me, because what I'm, what I'm noticing is interesting, and I've been talking to Brandon about this online and offline, is we genuinely are viewing the same stimulus uh, stimuli differently. I my, And that's not a political thing. It's not about who's to blame. It's not any of that. It's about I have not for one moment, even though I have three young children, uh, granted, I know young people are less affected. I have not been worried at all about the virus. What's actually infuriating me right now, and I'm, I'm actively angry about it, is that you go to the grocery store and these people are buying like 12 cartons of eggs that are definitely going to spoil, right? They're buying a cart full of milk, which is definitely going to go bad. They're buying more toilet paper than you need for an entire army. And what concerns me is that people who work on an hourly basis who can't stock up on a month worth of goods or people who have to work nine to five or they'll get fired. They can't wait at the grocery store for the next shipment to come. And so I don't know if these people are liberal, conservative or anywhere in between, but it's driving me nuts that the human response has been screw everyone else. 
I'm going to take care of me. And the irony of it all is that everything I've read says that supply chains are functioning properly, meaning that if you kept your regular behavior and how you shop and how you eat and how you prepare with toilet paper, everyone would have access to materials and that would make these quarantines go much smoother. So I just personally am not at all worried about the virus, but I'm very, very worried about the way humans are responding to it. Do you have any thoughts on that? And do you think that's more in line with what with what Julia is saying on this polling that conservatives aren't concerned? Because I'm not. I'm just concerned about the state of humanity when I watch how people are responding to it. Yeah, and that's totally right. And that's another one of those cognitive, kind of, you know, how our brain plays tricks on us. And it's another one of those universal truths that are true, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. Um, I would not be surprised, despite how these people, how conservatives are potentially identifying as less concerned, if they are also part of this behavior, like you said, you don't know. It's not like you're going to ask somebody that's hoarding toilet paper what, what their political views are. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't matter because, again, that tribal identity and that self-reporting of concern is not necessarily aligned to how our brains process risk and how we react to what we perceive to be a an involuntary risk that we are exposed to. So I know there's a lot of concepts we're talking about here and some of them might get a little confusing, but I just wanna make sure this is stated clearly. So we as human beings across the board are not well calibrated. And when we are presented with risks that we can't seem to get a grip on, that we don't choose to engage with ourselves, like uh, obesity and lifestyle behaviors that result in different disease states like diabetes, smoking causing cancer. These are things that kill hundreds of thousands of Americans a year, but it's something we accept and we live with because one, it's been around for a long time. We know what, what it is. And it's almost considered a voluntary lifestyle choice that we find ourselves in these uh, negative adverse health outcome situations. When something new and novel emerges, and we even called it the novel coronavirus to begin with, everything in our brains kind of fire off from the origins of how our species evolved from how we protected ourselves and were able to become a you know community of people that thrived. So our brains are still wired more similarly to our ancestors than they are to the reality of the different risks that we face now in the current landscape. So our ancestors survived because they would see a snake and they would run away. That flight or flight response was really helpful towards evolution. And that is still how we are responding to the different risks that present themselves today. So when we see something like a coronavirus emerge, we have all of those different neurons go off that say, panic. This, it triggers everything in us to then respond in all of the behaviors that you just described, which is to regain some control. So we don't see people changing their behaviors around risks that are way more, um, <laughs> result in way more annual fatalities consistently right? Like a diabetes. And the reason for that is because they don't trigger those, those hotspots in our brains. You know, one, one area where I think Shane and I agree on is, you know, some of the response, uh, you know, as far as like buying all the toilet paper and all of that uh, may have been a little bit over the top. But where I am deeply frustrated, you know, having been in the White House, served in the administration during times like this uh, with H1N1 and, and other scenarios is that they're could have been appropriate planning for this and preparation where we would have avoided being in this dire situation that we're in right now, you know, human suffering, economic collapse. Uh, and so uh, the lack of preparedness uh, from the White House when experts were telling them differently, when they could see these things developing across the world uh, has been deeply frustrating for me. And one of the questions I have for Shane is, you know, do have Republicans learned anything from this? Uh, 
are Republicans after this maybe more inclined to listen to experts, to engage in early prevention, think about the role of government in these mass threats like climate? Like, will this affect the way Republicans think about climate, having seen the failure of this uh, in the beginning, the way it was handled? Yeah, I mean, so I think, and, and, and keep in mind, I can only speak for myself and the individuals that I speak to, not including, of course, the President of the United States or, or Secretary Mnuchin or anyone else. But I think the answer is, is going to disappoint you. And I think it's primarily no. I mean, for a couple of reasons. A lot of the people I interact with, uh, some who work in the administration, some who work on Capitol Hill, you know, others who are in this political ecosystem, really still to this point don't seem concerned at all about, you know, larger scale health and safety issues. Where I think the primary concern is, is the economic consequences of whatever all of this is. I, you know, I can't speak to what the president heard or didn't hear or what he did and didn't plan for, but I imagine most of the massive response we're seeing now is an economic response. And, I, and I'm not saying like, you know, a political response. I'm not saying it's about polling. I'm saying it's about, you know, concern that a very strong, healthy economy could possibly go into recession for a virus that's sort of out of everyone's control. Obviously, you know, I think everyone would be, you know, happier if we were more prepared, had more tests, had more, you know, masks and, and all the equipment that we need. I saw this morning um, that the administration is determined to use the Defense Production Act which basically allows the government to procure as much of anything as they need from the private sector, even if that means voiding other private uh, sector contracts to make sure that the government's fully supplied. So certainly uh, this response you know, could have been done earlier, but I don't know that anyone fully understood the size and scope, but maybe the White House did. To answer your climate question, Brandon, I think, and I'm guessing here, but, but I think the answer is going to be no. And I think it might actually cut against things like climate change, because I think what a lot of Republicans have argued for years, and I used to be one of them, frankly, was that we have so many problems in this world today, and we have so many problems that we don't even know about that we're going to have tomorrow. And so investing time, capital, thought, research into a problem that we don't really need to worry about for 30 years is wasteful. Uh, now, now I, that's not how I feel today, but I'm saying that has been my point of view in the past before I was sort of more engaged in this issue and learned more about how the decisions we're woke. making today impact. <laughs> before I got woke. Well, well, before I understood that our decisions today could have irreversible outcomes, right? Um, I just kind of felt like it's a, it's a long-term problem. Let's deal with long-term. But I think if you're a conservative Republican who thinks that the reaction to climate is overstated and that the amount of capital people want to invest in climate is overstated – then you might very well say, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is when we need to spend government resources. This is when we need to declare an emergency. This today, dealing with people's inability to go to work and, and find food and go to school, this is what we need to deal with. And this climate stuff, this is all garbage. This is a distraction. I can't swear to that, but unfortunately, that's that's what I see coming. Well, the good news is that the intense reaction we're seeing today to coronavirus shows that people actually can do something when there's an emergency and that pretty extreme measures can be taken. I'm not saying that these are good, but it just shows that there is an ability to mobilize. And on climate change, it's long been understood as this approaching risk, something that's far away, and people have been hesitant to tackle in a bold way today. But a little less than half of Americans believe climate change is now harming the U.S., like harming the U.S. currently. So I think it will be interesting to see if this actually starts becoming relevant in the climate discussion. You know, the human behavioral response we get to a crisis like we're seeing now could start to grow more on climate as people really feel it more directly. Um 
that said, that that's a future thing. Right now, I feel like a real concern is for clean energy companies, solar, wind, energy storage, and otherwise that could see their businesses really harmed by the economic downturn uh, unless there's truly robust policies put in place to address this. And, and that will ultimately hurt uh, climate action overall. The, the deeply frustrating thing about this is that, you know, the information was all there for the president uh, and, and the U.S. government. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. It wasn't a surprise. This was developing around the world. We could have taken action. They chose not to. And that's the really dangerous sign uh, for climate. We're in a similar situation. The experts are, are giving us the warnings. It's all right in front of our face. Uh, we have the information we need to act. We have the technologies that we need to deal with this. And when we talk about making these investments, the Republicans say it costs too much. But then all of a sudden with coronavirus, as soon as things have become, you know, politically painful for them, all of a sudden they can find trillions of dollars. Uh, Why can't we do that for climate as well? That's that's where I'm really stuck and want to hear how Shane thinks about that. Yeah, I mean, my my answer would be twofold. One is. Um, I think you and I do view it differently. I, I don't think that Republicans are responding with large spending packages for political convenience. I think, you know, a lot of the conservative ideology that I do share is based on, you know, a strong economy. Without a strong economy, none of the other sort of aspects of how I view the world work. And so I do think the economy is a concern, not the political outcomes. But secondarily, Brandon, I think the jobs of folks like you and I who are educated in this space who are knowledgeable because we've spent time working on it. And we've worked with both companies and environmental groups and sort of heard from scientists. I think part of our job is to advocate for and educate about how spending all of this money to boost the economy can also benefit climate. I don't think we have to say, let's take a trillion dollars and address climate and you can have the rest for the economy. I think we can make the point that addressing climate is very good for the economy, not only today, where you're sort of building uh, infrastructure that, that can adapt to rising sea levels and all those other things, but also building infrastructure that will help reduce economy-wide emissions in the long term and make the case that we're spending money today to stimulate the economy and we're saving money tomorrow because these investments need to be made. Now, that's a hard argument to make when, when government doesn't want to spend money. But when government's already saying we're going to spend trillions, we just don't know exactly where, that's where you say, okay, well, now that we are all agreeing that we're going to spend it, let's spend it on resilient infrastructure and futuristic infrastructure that helps us avoid other types of catastrophes in the future. So I want to circle back on policy at the end, but for now, I want to bring Shweta back in and dig a little further into some of the human behavior elements. So earlier we were talking about overreactions and panicked responses to the coronavirus. So that's one thing. That's the fight or flight response. And it sounds like that can transcend politics. But then there's this deeper set of held beliefs uh, that we all have. And this got me thinking more about the connections here between coronavirus, politics, and climate. Like Shane, I'm not personally fearful of the coronavirus, but I am afraid that someone I know and love and even people that I don't know could be hurt by this. And so I take certain reasonable steps to change my life and even give some things up. And I know a lot of people are also trying to help by donating to food banks, paying their house cleaners, even if they aren't coming in and things like that. So there's this sense of giving and sacrifice for the greater good of us all. And I imagine a lot of people are feeling that way. They're listening to the government, they're listening to medical professionals, and they're doing the right thing. But there's varying degrees of enthusiasm or I guess willingness might be a better word. Which makes me think again of the kind of links that we're talking about here, specifically the question of how one's view of an issue filters through their existing ideology. 
So I mentioned those poll numbers earlier, and I'm wondering if the way Republicans are thinking about this speaks more to the nature of the response that's required rather than the threat of coronavirus itself. So is it is it belief that the virus exists and will harm you that's dividing Democrats and Republicans? Or is it more that the whole coronavirus issue starts to feel stupid and overblown if you don't like the idea of staying cooped up at home or if you don't like, you know, being told what to do by your community members or something along those lines? Think of China and South Korea. There was a lot of government intervention there. I think that inherently is something that Republicans would be opposed to and fearful of. And the same kind of discussion will probably come up now as we respond to the economic situation. How much government intervention should there be, which may in turn evolve how people think about the coronavirus itself. And again, and similarly on climate change, a lot of the solutions that Democrats have put forward involve a big role for government. Uh, and so I know that there are uh, experts out there, including Jonathan Haidt, professor of ethical leadership at NYU Stern School of Business, who points to how that the orientation of of the action and the solution versus the problem itself creates these divisions. So let's actually play a clip of something he said recently in an interview with London Real. And in the study, what they did was they, they, asked, they asked people, including people on the right and the left, um, do you, how much do you agree or how much do you believe that global warming is man-made? Uh, your temperatures are rising. To what extent are humans responsible? And people on the left and the right generally agree that that's happening, but people on the left are more confident of that. But if you give people first an essay about how to combat global warming, we're going to have to have major regulation of corporations and uh, emissions and what kind of car you drive. And so if you basically say, in order to solve this problem, we're going to have to do all the things that Republicans hate, which is a much bigger state telling people how to run their business. If you do that, then suddenly Republicans don't just oppose the solution, they actually change their belief about the facts. They're more likely to say, well, it's not even caused by humans. Whereas, if you say, um, to address this, we're going to have to use, as part of the package, we're going to have to use market-based solutions. The only way to get effects at scale is if we incentivize companies to do this. You know, so if you have free market solutions, now suddenly they're even more likely to say that global warming is, is human-made. So, Shweta, on, on that front, do you think that it's the nature of the response that might be creating different uh, reactions on the political scale to coronavirus? And, and similarly with climate change, it's the solutions that people are putting forward that create these divisions and polarization? So it's the it's the different rankings of those truths that we were talking about in the beginning. This also came from the research coming out of social and moral psychology that Hate and others have worked on extensively. But People's reactions will come down to how they how the information is presented. And again, that needs to also be looked at in relationship to how our brains are wired to respond to risk. Those are two separate things, but they work in uh, parallel to each other as well. So even your tribal identity and how you're going to respond based on what your group is doing and saying, that is an extremely strong innate trait that human being, beings have. At the same time, human beings across the board are going to react in that flight or fight response that also includes other factors like we talked about, like whether or not it's new, whether it's voluntary, whether it's familiar, whether there's catastrophic potential. So both of those things are working together. So that's really important to keep in mind. So we understand how, it, how to present information 
to conservatives versus liberals and how conservatives can really turn off if you present information to them that is not aligned to what is in within their identity and what is believed. Even if you're presenting truth and facts, it doesn't matter because anyone, especially today, can just Google and find like 10 million hits on a counter truth <laughs> or some perspective that is completely not aligned to the science. Uh, but that's all that is really needed to justify a position that is deeply held and part of this tribal identity. So that's something that really needs to be taken into consideration when anything related to science or facts, and I'm still talking about climate change, when something like that is presented. If now COVID-19 is as politicized as it seems to be, then the same principles that we just talked about with climate change are going to be applicable to that. And for a long time, infectious disease was not seen as anything partisan. It was one of those, it was one of the few things that we really, regardless of where we fell politically, we had confidence in our scientists, in our epidemiologists, in our public health experts to keep us protected from. And it's a very new phenomenon with this emergence of this particular coronavirus that we're seeing politicization of infectious disease. And it's going to be the same challenges that we are seeing that we've had with climate change. So despite the science, despite the facts, people are still going to really hold their tribal identity and whatever that group dynamic is to be true, overcoming some of that is going to be the biggest challenge for us going forward. My biggest fear is this is how it will play out with climate, where the experts were saying, we need to take early action, the government needs to get involved, we need to prevent this. And then uh, because of some of the things that Shweta's talking about, Republicans delay too long, and then it's too late, and then we have to take these really draconian measures uh, that are very difficult for everybody. And now we've created a lot of unnecessary, um, uh, un, you know, uh, unnecessary actions that have caused a lot of like uh, trouble for people. We this could have been prevented and mitigated if the administration would have listened to the experts early on. The experts are saying the same thing about climate. We need the government to get involved now. We need to take more uh, measures now. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. Right. So there's clearly a lesson here going forward, putting the current crisis to the side. You know, what can we learn from this that we can take with us going forward that will be relevant, say, like months, years and even maybe decades in the future? I know some businesses are already adapting uh, due to the disruption they've experienced in recent weeks. So in many ways, I feel like the coronavirus could be a warm up act for what people will experience in, in the climate changing world. Yeah, so I'm all about proactive measures. And in the case of infectious disease, we we were very underfunded. We were not prepared with the diagnostic testing that we've learned from SARS and swine flu. And I mean, even if we're going to go back to data from over 100 years ago, which we're doing with Spanish flu, that I really want to caution a lot of analyses on because a lot of the data that is coming, that is being presented is really quite old. And we're talking about a societal system and society that has changed quite significantly in the past century. So I would take a, some of that with caution. But that being said, in more recent outbreaks, we've learned quite a bit. And based on that, there should have been proactive preventative measures put in place. The CDC should have been better funded. All of these things that we know from the infectious disease community and the epidemiology community and the medical health community have asked for and we did not deliver on. And that is something that is, that is clear that we could have been better on top of this. 
Shweta, having having spoken earlier, I understand that, you know, when it comes to the reactions here and the overreactions we were talking about, in your view, it doesn't just apply to individuals and, you know, hoarding toilet paper. You're also talking about the U.S. government and how there's now uh, an overreaction uh, coming in response to coronavirus. Explain what you mean there. Once an outbreak hits something like this, something like a coronavirus, at that point, it becomes the measures that get put in place, given that the preparedness wasn't there at that point, are they being based on the reality of what can really be done to prevent overall bad outcomes? Or is it is it being are these measures being put in place to reflect public demands and public perceptions of risk that are not necessarily aligned to the overall best outcomes for individual health and for societal health? That is what I'm asking us to think about critically, because we cannot do what China did. I mean, for us to say that the United States was going to do that, the only time that something like that would happen and that would be responded to well by the American public would be if this was infectious disease that epidemiologists and infectious disease experts have warned us about, that the movie Contagion was about, which, by the way, I have colleagues that advised on that movie, and they're incredible. And that's that's a true reality of what could happen if a disease like what happened in the movie Contagion spread as fast as it did and was as fatal as it was. That is something that we would see martial law in, put in place and where containment and everything, uh, any sort of like freedom that we would expect or enjoy and the disjointed responses we're experiencing now. Some people are still going out. Some local governments still have restaurants open in the U.S. It, it's very disjointed. We would not expect that or be okay with that in the event of that disease X emerging. And that's a really real risk that the infectious disease community is really concerned about. COVID-19 is not that disease. So that is why we're seeing the response that we're seeing from the American government, which is kind of playing catch up. Delaying the peak is all good and fine, but overall the evidence has shown from previous outbreaks that that's probably of marginal benefit. So if that's true, then ultimately, what we're doing now in playing catch up was is more harmful than good. And we need to re- keep that in mind and look at that big picture. I just want to be clear that on this podcast, I don't we don't want to counteract what governments and medical professionals are saying about social distancing, sheltering in place and other measures that we're being instructed to take today. My understanding is that there was an underreaction from the government that got us to where we are today. And the immediate steps we're taking now are to flatten this curve and to buy time for healthcare workers and healthcare systems to manage through this outbreak going forward. It will come. We and we are not China, but we are doing what we can. We don't want to see this huge spike and then have hospitals overwhelmed and have another uncontrolled economic downturn stemming from really just a lot of sick people. That said, for the sake of discussion, you know, there will be trade-offs, whether it's now or down the line. So I think that is a valid point. I just want to say, though, that, you know, we're not doctors. And so listen to yours and listen to your local leaders. But should I take your earlier point at the outset that there are limited resources? And so we have to be thinking in this holistic, almost 3D chess kind of way, especially as climate change adds more variables to the mix. Yeah, we know that based on climate change, based on habitat destruction based on interactions with animals and ecosystems that humans historically haven't because of overpopulation on a warming planet, that inevitably one of these diseases that are under surveillance at any given time by various um, infectious disease networks will emerge. And what we're learning from COVID-19 is where all the gaps are in the system. And that will be hopefully the good takeaway out of this entire crisis is how do we better fortify 
And then what do we need to do? What does true containment look like that really prevents Shweta, we learned that where we the learned. gaps were in the system. We did learn this. I was there in the White House. That's why a pandemic office was set up, because we learned from those mistakes. And then Trump and Bolton got rid of it. I would say that if that's the case, then why wasn't it? It was also Tony Fauci after he came out and had to deal with swine flu. They were still working on the budget from Ebola. So that wasn't actually they did not have the resources that they needed to even deal with swine flu, despite all of the lessons learned from the previous outbreaks. So even in a different administration, there wasn't there was too much complacency because we as uh, our brains just aren't perceiving great enough risk when there isn't a crisis happening in that particular moment. And I've seen that across administrations. It's not just unique to, I'm not saying that this administration made the right moves by any means. It's a disaster that we weren't prepared, but that is not something that's just unique to conservative administrations. That's been unfortunately the case all along because if we don't have a crisis, we don't have a response. I don't know what I saw, you know, when I was there with H1N1, Ebola was a very professional uh, approach to this, uh, where the damage was uh, mitigated, not that it was the response was perfect, uh, but it was uh, an all around the clock effort to get this right. It wasn't Jared Kushner reaching out on Facebook to a network of family doctors we relied on the experts uh, across the federal government, the best and brightest. Contrast that to the president going on TV, addressing you know, the American public, having not talked to any of the experts, having gross errors in that statement. Just the contrast in professionals and expertise in the administrations is, is really having an enormous consequence on people's health right now. And it's, 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 it's just, my belief is just total disaster. The inconsistency in messaging does not help at all with trust. And trust is so critical for uh, and consistent messaging, which ensures that everybody that has a stake in this, the heads of different agencies, the president, if he's the spokesperson in this case, he should not have been communicating. But there needs to be consistent messaging so that that trust is built up following a crisis. And that communication needs to have happened well in advance of a crisis breaking out, especially a predictable one, like an emerging infectious disease. We know infectious diseases emerge and it happens relatively regularly. And the fact that none of that was put in place and then rolled out following the outbreak is, this is just classic, um, <laughs> just horrible governance. And we should have learned from past outbreaks and certain governments and administrations, I'm, I agree, have done better than worse which is the case here. But the distrust that this caused, the inconsistent messaging and the distrust, I think probably had worse of an impact than anything else that you're referring to. I think that ultimately we're going to look back and see that that was the real, that is really what fueled a lot of the bad behavior that uh, Shane was referring to in terms of people getting panicked. Because if we had consistent messaging, we wouldn't have had been responding and playing catch up in the way that we are now. To your point, Shweta, we know more outbreaks will come and we know that climate change will play a role in driving them. In 2010, the Quadrennial Defense Review pointed out that warmer temperatures uh, will exacerbate the kind of illnesses that we're talking about today. And Shweta, I know you mentioned this. And there have been several reports since then from the medical community, defense and others that have pointed this out. I think the question is really going to be, to what extent can the, the leaders of the world 
take lessons learned and do these truly um, put in the foundations we really need for a better response in future. And that also goes for not even within borders, but according to experts I've heard, including Alana Schick, who is a global health expert, talking about needing to improve global healthcare systems in other countries. Say an outbreak emerges in Chad, where there are something like three doctors to 100,000 people. If there was truly the deadly kind of Ebola-like virus that was also easily transmitted and it occurred there, the outbreak across the globe would be so much more rapid and, and brutal. And so there really needs to be a systems thinking here that um, no no government under any administration has really ever taken on. So again, we both know that the threat of an outbreak will get worse because of climate change as climate change intensifies. We also know that separately, climate change is a global problem. And like viruses, we will need to be thinking about solutions globally because ultimately we will all be affected. Oh, I totally agree with that. And then we wouldn't have this disjointed policy because again, if this was really, if the base rate statistics around the mortality and transmission of COVID-19 were requiring of that sort of federal top-down mandate, then this choice, this voluntary choice of going out, not going out, and kind of the disjointed decisions that are being made across the United States would not exist. So the fact that we are in this moment and not responding consistently across the country, and we have um, this spectrum of response and tolerance for this risk and and exposure to this risk just goes to show that we just don't, we, the preparedness wasn't there that was really necessary. And if we're not going to contain in an extreme way, like we saw with China, which again, we wouldn't do unless this was a lot more, uh, the mortality rate was much higher. We're not going to have enough support to have that type of containment like we saw in China. Then we need, we needed also in addition to that preparedness um, and consistent communication and all of that, that didn't happen with this administration, we would need to really fortify public health. Yeah, we are hearing a lot about economic stimulus, but I mean, I at least have not heard much about how there would be a fortification of the U.S. healthcare system uh, for the long run. Speaking of policy, Brandon, I wanted to hear from you quickly in our final minutes here, what you think the response should be politically on the economic side and how maybe clean energy uh, and climate mitigation efforts could be brought in there. We're seeing a discussion around a stimulus package. Do you think that this is the kind of proactive step that the government could be taking where they also pass legislation that includes, you know, climate mitigating um, elements? Or is that irrelevant to this discussion? I, you know, I think one of the other parallels with COVID is that um, while individual actions, uh, you know, to support are really good, you know, washing your hands, taking all that guidance, just like in climate, taking individual actions like uh, recycling uh, and all that is, is very good, but it's not enough to address these uh, society-wide threats. This is the purpose of the government and only the government can tr solve these problems uh, that are at the scale of affecting an entire society. So to answer your question, uh, yes, uh, there are discussions happening around a stimulus. Um, we are probably in a recession right now. Uh, there's going to be a lot of activity on the Hill around uh, what is the best way to address the uh, health crisis we're in right now, and then uh, the potential economic crisis that we could be heading to. And in my view, this is the perfect time, no shocker, to uh, to do a Green New Deal. <laughs> and so. Uh, the Green New Deal is a jobs program, and we have a lot of people that are going to suffer uh, from this who are going to be laid off, 
this would be the perfect time if we're going to do a massive government spending to also solve the climate problem at the same time, put people back to work, uh, put them to work, uh, building our infrastructure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, prepare for that threat as well. Ashwada, I know you've spoken a lot about, you know, the Green New Deal and climate action writ large. Is there anything you could add here about, um, not necessarily about the virus, but what we need to be doing as a society on climate change and maybe how that relates to the political and policy decisions we take next? Well, if we if we look at this from a social psych and risk perception point of view, the Green New Deal hits every button that the right is never going to get on board with. So we're basically presenting a solutions package that is also including everything that the left has really wanted um, and stands for, which just pushes the right that much further to dig in their heels and to be very um, antagonistic against getting any of the measures through, despite how good some of the ideas in it really are. It's almost like an all or nothing. And everything we've talked about in this podcast so far about tribal identity and and the different moral truths that people rank depending on where they fall in the political spectrum, the Green New Deal is just completely counter to the reality of those solutions being presented in a way that the right is going to get on board with. And so it's not realistic to roll out in that sense. I wish from just like a good ideas point of view, I think it, it's a lot of really good ideas. I think the reality of it actually being put in practice in any in any real way, and especially with now the politicization politicization of infectious disease like COVID-19, it just goes to show that there is going to need to be, there's going to need to be solutions that are presented so that they do not set off those triggers that make people dig in their heels even more. For me, as I think through this more and try to think about bringing it back to our show, the relationship with climate change is that I think what we've come to find, and I've heard Brandon say several times on this show, that we need a World War II style mobilization to address climate change. But I think what it really is, if you want to win conservatives over, and I think we all do want to win conservatives over to address climate, is that conservatives tend not to worry too much and they tend to want to take actions they view as rational. So why do conservatives and liberals agree, not not agree necessarily in polling, but act in concert as we saw Congress do the last couple of days when they view a threat as imminent? Because when you view a threat as imminent, whether that's a war or whether that's a virus or whatever it is that seems like it's on your doorstep right now, Democrats want to respond using the government and conservatives want to respond in a way that they view as rational. Immediate grand action seems rational with an immediate grand threat. So my takeaway from all this is we collectively and me and my colleagues on the right need to find a way to convince conservatives that the rational response to climate change is action today. Not that they should be irrational by taking action today, but that because of the size, scope, scale of the threat and the, and the time frame or what it occurs and when you can start to mitigate it, the rational response to it is to take, you know, action today that meets the, the scale of the challenge. Not that that's anything, you know, overly insightful, but that's my takeaway from this whole sort of whirlwind over the last couple of weeks. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there only because we're out of time. And there's things that I know Shweta can comment on as well, like um, the worry around climate change and going all the way to some people feeling truly depressed and immobilized by that sense of concern. Um, and so Shweta, I really hope we can have you back on to, to walk through the climate specific parts of this in future. Yes, I'd love that. Thank you. All right. So time to end our show now with our segment, Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Brandon, what do you have? It's going to be a shocker. I'm going to say something nice about Tucker Carlson. 
uh, I read that uh, Tucker Carlson was at Mar-a-Lago uh, and went to Trump and told him he needed to take the uh, COVID-19 virus more seriously. Uh, we all know that in politics, like who the messenger is matters. Uh, so <laughs> most people might not have had like maybe the CDC uh, leader would not have had that impact on Trump, but Tucker Carlson, he listens to. And uh, it was a good thing that I think Tucker Carlson seemed to have gotten his attention on this. And maybe some of the changes that have happened uh, were a result of that conversation. Right. Shane, anything? Yeah, I have one, but I want to respond to Brandon's too. Interestingly, Tucker Carlson has been sounding this alarm on his show for a month and, and really laughed at, you know, by a lot. Um, so interestingly, this was one of those times that, that he came out early on something and, and turned out to be right about the steps that, you know, he was talking about people being quarantined or at least self-quarantined and, and, and these long lines at grocery stores and all that about a month ago. So interestingly, what a, what a, what a strange world. But, um, my say something nice is about speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, not necessarily because I know exactly what she has done, but almost because I don't know ex exactly what she has done. I know that her and Secretary Mnuchin, and to a, a far lesser extent, you know, the the president in the White House, have been sort of back deal negotiating a positive outcome for the American people. Now, I don't know what's all going to be in all the packages that come through and pass. I don't know if I'll agree with all of it or disagree, but that's not really the point. The point is that this is a time for people who are leaders in our country who have been elected to solve problems work together in a proactive way. And the fact that I haven't heard a lot of talking points, the fact that I haven't heard anything negative coming from either side, to me means that people are, are behaving in the way that they should. So hat tip to her for doing what she needs to do to steer Congress in the right direction. Shweta, we're putting on the spot, but is there anything you'd want to commend either side for? So I commend whenever Tony Fauci is given the microphone and I was very pleased to see uh, him being able to go on and speak after Trump in that first, you know, conference, press conference, and then since then, because ultimately, let's listen to the experts here. And it is not the time for politics to override the reality of the risk that we are facing. Um, and so let's trust the guidance that's being put forward, because somebody like him, who is single handedly known for turning HIV and AIDS from a terminal disease into a chronic illness, right? Somebody like him is a trusted individual who has the right to uh, recommend what we need to do to protect our, ourselves, our families, our communities, and should be taken very seriously. Again, they're going to be overcautious, but I will always defer to that expertise, and I appreciate both sides for recognizing that expertise. Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on. And that's where we'll end our show today. Thanks so much for listening. This is Political Climate. You can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. And you can find us on pretty much any podcasting platform out there. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, all of them. Hit subscribe so you can follow along to future episodes. Thanks again to everyone on our show today. And we'll be back soon.